We looked last week at this text from Exodus 19 that God elects and chooses a people, the nation of Israel, and props them in a land with a, with a task, missionary obedience in that land, that if they would hear the voice of the God and that they would keep his covenant, he would position them as a light to the nations. We know even as we taught last week, and as you read the words of Exodus 19, that there is a massive problem with the if of Exodus 19. And it's the problem that we see quite clearly looking at Exodus 19 from this side of the cross. And that is that the people were entirely incapable of keeping the covenant. It is the frustration of the better part of all of the scriptures is that the nation of Israel simply did not obey. Their immediate disobedience after the giving of the law leads to a period of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And yet God continues to meet the waywardness of the people with his gracious generosity. He is kind to give them a land in spite of their disobedience. But soon, even in the land, their disobedience runs amok. They appoint a king to be like the nations. And God, it seems, is gracious. He gives them a king after his own heart, one David, who, as you read the scriptures, it would seem is going to finally usher in this rule and reign, this period where Israel embodies what they were created to be. But yet, we know that the downward descent of the nation of Israel only kicks into high gear again. And this pattern of cyclical disobedience, repentance, met by another period of disobedience, continues to be the ebb and flow of all of the scriptures. Internal strife and division tear the nation apart. First in the north, the ten tribes of Israel fall to Assyria in 722, and then in the south, following the revival of Josiah, the two southern tribes of Judah fall to Babylon in 587 and 86. The historical book, specifically 2 Kings, tell the split-screen progression of the descent of these two nations as God deals and confronts the idolatry of his people. One specific place in 2 Kings 17.22 seems to embody the words that God says over and over again through these books. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets, so Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. This theme of exile serves as a major thematic unit in the Old Testament, that God exiled his people because they could not keep the if. And thus we have the prophetic books at various stages of the descent of the nations, of their exile and their return, God raising up prophets to speak on behalf of God to an ever wayward people. One of these, the prophet Ezekiel, spoke to the first generation of exiles of Judah, carried off to Babylon. These exiles are fresh from the trauma itself of being kicked off of the land. And the words of Ezekiel 5 will not serve as the type of passage that any of you are going to frame and put in your kitchen, put on a t-shirt, or plaster on a coffee cup. They are stern 
and straight to the point. Ezekiel 5, beginning in verse 5. The prophet, on behalf of God, reflects on the exile this way. Thus says the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I've set her in the center of the nations with countries all around her. Now, stopping there before we continue in the text, we see very clearly that God says, I've set Israel in the center of the nations with the countries around her. And more specifically, God has scattered the nations and placed Israel in the middle. His judgment on the nations has been seen in the progression of the nation of Israel. Even in delivering them from slavery from Egypt, God, in his kindness to the nation of Israel, does it, it seems, at the expense of the other nations. He has judged the nations. He has exposed the gods of the other nations as empty and pathetic. He's driven them out. And by placing Israel in the center of the nations, he has starkly and rightly said, your gods are empty and vain, and I alone am worthy of worship. But he's not done any of this hastily. 430 years in slavery of Egypt before he delivers them, as Genesis 15, before the bag of the sin of the Amorites was bursting. He's not acted hastily, but he has acted rightly in judging the nations. But then, in verse 6, this is where the text shifts into high gear. She has, this is speaking of the nation of Israel, she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations, against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more tur turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and you have not walked in my statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you, therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Now this text begins to take a sharp turn that if you're hearing this as an Israelite is vastly out of character for God. He says, I, even I, am against you. The words once spoken to the nations are now addressed to God's people. Israel finds themselves confronted with an adversary. And this adversary is God himself. In the same way that the Egyptians and the Canaanites had come against the judgment of God, now Israel does. Amos, another one of these authors, these prophetic authors, a shepherd boy, writes in building fashion, penetrating fashion, speaking to the nations that the Lord is like a lion about to pounce on his prey. As you read the first, chapter, first eight chapters of the book of Amos, as an Israelite, you're saying, yeah, get them, God. The nations are the rightful recipients of your judgment until we come to Amos 9, where God says, oh yeah, and by the way, you too. The very judgment that I'm going to bring on the nations, I'm about to bring on you. Amos 9, 7, and 8, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? 
and the Philistines from Kephor, and the Assyrians from Kerr. Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. It says, you're no different to me. I am not a national god who's going to play favorites, but I am the king of the universe. And no one, not even Israel itself, is immune to the judgment of God. And so he writes in verse 9, because of all your admonitions, abominations, I'm sorry, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Therefore, fathers shall eat their sons in your midst. I told you this was not coffee cup worthy. And the sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments on you. And any of you who survive, I will scatter to all the winds. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord, surely, because you have defiled my sanctuary with all your detestable things and with all your abominations, therefore I will withdraw my eye, will not spare, and I will have no pity. A third part of you shall die of pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. A third part shall fall by the sword all around you. And a third part I will scatter to all the winds and I will unsheath the sword after them. Thus shall my anger spend itself and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself. And they shall know that I am the Lord, that I have spoken in my jealousy when I spend my fury upon them. Even more, the judgment of God stares the nation of Israel in the face, and it seems as if God is saying, you are going to face even more severe judgment. You had the promises, you had the land, you had been warned, and yet your sin even exceeded that of the nations. And therefore, I'll spend my fury on you. Amos 3, you only I have chosen all the families of the earth, Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. That's quite a contrast, right? God says, I've chosen you, and because you've been the subject, the object of my chosen love, I will spend my judgment on you in a unique, distinctive way. Moreover, in verse 14, I will make you a desolation and an object of reproach among the nations all around you. And in the sight of all who pass by, you shall be a reproach and a taunt, a warning and a horror to all the nations around you. When I execute judgments on you in anger and fury and furious rebukes, I, the Lord, I have spoken. What a contrast, right? Instead of being positioned as a light to the nations, to demonstrate and declare what life was like under the rightful rule and reign of God, he says, your name's going to be a taunt, a warning, a horror. The nations are going to see my judgment played out on you in a distinct way. And in fact, God, in his wisdom, is even going to use the very nations as an instrument of his judgment. Catch this from Jeremiah 27. Give them this charge to their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and the animals that are on the earth 
and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and then this phrase, my servant. I have given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own, that his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Catch what God said. I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar, this Babylon king, as my servant and an instrument of judgment to you. Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon had won the victory not over Yahweh, but the victory of Yahweh. They hadn't defeated God's people, but they had been a pawn in God's hand to execute his judgment of his people. Why? The same why that spans throughout the Old Testament of the Scriptures, for the sake of his name. In fact, that phrase, the nations will know that I am God or that I am Yahweh, is used 80 times in the book of Ezekiel. It's almost the prophet's calling card. Everything he says, that you will know that I am Yahweh. Now, this doesn't simply mean for us that the nations would know that there is a God whose name is Yahweh and that that God exists, but rather that they would rightfully respond to that God in worship. And he says, my judgment is going to bring that about. Verse 16, finish the text. When I send against you the de deadly arrows of famine arrows for destruction, which I will send to destroy you. And when I bring more and more famine upon you and break your supply of bread, I will send famine and wild beasts upon you. They will rob you of your children. Pestilence and blood shall pass through you, and I will bring the sword upon you. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. Did you catch that? That God's judgment of famine... A mark throughout the Old Testament of God withdrawing his favor would fall now on his people. That their flagrant sin had left God no alternative but to punish them. I mean, how could God position this people in the midst of the nations who were going to flagrantly dabble in the same idolatry for which he had judged the nations? And so he says, you're going to suffer the rightful penalty for your idolatry. And therefore, he judges. And his judgment seems much more stark and much more severe because of the very stupidity of Israel's idolatry. Much like a husband finding his wife in bed with another lover on their honeymoon. God has given his love to this people, has chosen and called them to himself, and in the very moment that he has chosen and called them and given them this great grace, they continue to rebel. And he says, therefore, I must judge. Ezekiel 10, saddest verses in all the Old Testament. Then the glory of the Lord went out from the threshold of the house. The glory leaves the temple. And as the glory leaves the temple and God's people leave the land, the exile raises significant questions for Israel. Israel stands defeated. God's city is destroyed. 
God's people are driven out of the land, and God's people are met with the reality that they cannot, for the life of them, keep the covenant. They are utter failures. And in the same way as God drove Adam out of the garden, Eden, God drives his people off the land. This theme of exile runs throughout the scriptures. And the questions that you're naturally confronted with, God, what has become of your promises? Have you finally and fully given up on your people? I mean, up until this point, Israel's victory seems to assure the people, it seems to feed their confidence that God is for us. We know that God is for us because every time we go into battle, it seems like we win. But all of a sudden, now the script seems flipped. Now we're kicked off the land. Now God's whipping us. What are we to make of the promises? We don't have this confidence anymore that God is with us. They had to wrestle with the very nature of God's judgment in much the same fashion that I want us to wrestle with it this morning. Here is what the Old Testament scriptures say about God's judgment. And the nation of Israel should have learned from God's judgment, and the nation should have seen from God's judgment four things. They should have learned, one, that God will surely judge. God will surely judge, and this, while a simple point, is, one, is a drum that must continue to be beaten in our day. Because all around we are confronted with the idea that surely, if God is a God of love, he will not judge. The John Lennon refrain plays, right? All we need is love. You're going to meet this around every corner. You're going to see it in common questions. Rick Warren, in 2005 interview with Time Magazine, was asked by one of the speakers, or was confronted by one of the speakers on his ideas about hell, regardless of what you think of Rick Warren, this point is well made. The, the respondent asked Warren this question. Maybe you can hold in your mind the contradiction, which is that Wendy, this neighboring reporter, is a non-Christian reporter, is a full American citizen deserving of every protection that the most senior member of your church deserves. And when she dies, she's going to hell because she uh, did not say the question, she did not answer the question the way that you thought she should. Maybe you think that people that come to your church and people that read your books and are talking all over the world to hold in their head the contradiction that God is loving and yet he is also judging. Or in a popular Christian book, I won't mention the author, though many of you will know this quote, speaking in his chapter on Christianity and modern culture entitled, This is Not Your Grandma's Christianity. He writes, a staggering number of people have been taught that a select few Christians will spend forever in a peaceful, joyous place called heaven while the rest of humanity spends forever in torment and punishment in hell with no chance for anything better. It's been clearly communicated that, many of this uh, that too many that this belief is a central truth of the Christian faith and that to reject it is in essence to reject Jesus. This is misguided toxic, and ultimately subverts the contagious spread of Jesus' message of love, peace, forgiveness, and joy that our world desperately needs in this hour. Walk into any Christian bookstore in our day, and that one will line the top ten bestsellers, the book from which that quote is taken. Or more philosophical attacks, 
In the words of Richard Dawkins, his notable quote and description of Yahweh in the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament is arguably, arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pesticidal, megalomaniac, a sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Confronts us at every turn. God is a God of love, and thus he can't be what he's seemingly portrayed as in the scriptures is a God of judgment. What is often missed, and what we need to hold true this morning, is that in order for God to be a God of love, he must also be a God of judgment. That he is not a God of love or judgment. He is a God of love and judgment. One, in fact, requires the other. Consider in a marriage, I say to Sarah, Sarah, I love you. And in my very saying of Sarah, I love you, I say, Sarah, I am jealous of your love. You can't be just anyone's. You are mine. And the opposite of my love for Sarah would not be hate. The opposite of my love for Sarah would be indifference, right? That indifference to Sarah's reciprocation of love would be the mark of a deficient person in this very area. Thus, for God to say, I love a people must mean that he is going to fight jealously for their love, and he is going to stand in stark opposition of anything that's going to hurt them. He must be a God of judgment, and this story of judgment is written throughout the pages of the scriptures. The fall, the flood, Babel, Sodom and Gomorrah, Pharaoh, the Red Sea, the death of the firstborn generation of Israel in the wilderness, the Passover lamb, and and even specifically the death of Christ on the cross. You can't read the scriptures and not see a God of judgment. Now granted, this judgment gets marshaled out in different ways. For some, the judgment is direct. I mean, it's death on the spot. Son of Achan, Sodom and Gomorrah, Ananias and Sapphira, we see God judging a moment. And ultimately for us all, this judgment is quite direct, right? The wages of sin being death. That ultimately, before God, we are hopeless and helpless without him, and his rightful judgment is quite direct in all eternity. It's also quite indirect, in the way we perceive it in the lives that we live, Romans 1 tells us that a very specific form of God's judgment, of his condemnation of the replacing of the worship of the creator God with the worship of created things, is that God is going to hand them over to the desires of their heart. That God is going to passively let sin run amok. One of the starkest condemnations of the judgment of God and one that we see played out in many of our friends' lives and families' lives, that God just gives them over to the desires of their heart. Sin builds up a head of steam, and God, 
lets the sin go. This is why those trapped in addiction will describe that feeling of trappedness, like hell on earth, right? And there's a sense in which we speak of hell on earth. We don't have a clue what we're talking about. But there is a sense of the feeling of trapped in the cyclical bondage of our own sin being a very minuscule glance at what hell will be like. Trapped, disintegrating, feeling hopeless and helpless in ways that many of us would not put words to now, this sense of regret, of gnashing of teeth that we'll see played out in hell. And for the believer, God's judgment comes in the form of discipline. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines those that he loves. So around every corner, we're confronted with this reality that for God to be a God who is loving, he must also judge. Jonathan Lehman says that God's love is like a boomerang, that we love on the way out, but we hate on the way back. Because God's love on the way back slices right through and pierces even our own hearts and confronts us with the stark reality of our own sin. But secondarily, God, God, one, will surely judge, but secondarily, God will judge rightly. God will surely judge rightly. His judgment is justified. This is what makes God's judgment so daunting in Ezekiel 14. He says specifically, I've done none of this without cause. Done nothing without cause. And because I have rightful reason to judge, all that I am doing is right. It's righteous. And this is specifically true because God is concerned about something quite different than what we are most often concerned about. God is more concerned about the honor of his name than he is about you and me. God is more concerned about the honor of his name than he is about some mamby-pamby, pat-you-on-the-back, sloppy form of love. He loves and cherishes something vastly different than what we often do. God desires glory, and that means that judgment is often the means of demonstrating that glory. He'll kick you off the land. And we can have great confidence in, of this because God actually thinks rightly of himself. He is God. He thinks rightly of himself. So he is in much better position to define sin than you are. He knows what it is, and when he judges it, he's always right. Now, as a parent, this is the frustration, right? Like, I want to judge rightly in my home. I've got young kids, six, four, and three. I, I want to judge rightly. Like, I understand that right now parenting for me is establishing authority. I want my kids to know who's in charge. But I miss it sometimes. I blow it. I don't always judge rightly. Corey and Avery get in a spat, and I don't really know who's to blame. We don't have this worry with God. We know that he will always judge right. He always gets it right. And so, in his holiness... He's always going to act in settled opposition to sin. His holiness necessitates that he always acts in settled opposition to sin, and he's never going to miss it. So we can rest confident that we're never going to stand before God and get in an arguing match about what sin looked like in our lives. He's always right. 
You don't get to define those terms. He defines them, and he defines them rightly. This gives us great hope in the face of great, great heaviness that we would feel. It gives us hope, as we see in this quote from Miroslav Volf. He's a Croatian who lived through the nightmare of the ethnic strife in the former Yugoslavia. He's a religious philosopher in this day, and he writes this in, in a, popular, uh, a popular writing. I used to think that wrath was unworthy of God. Isn't God love? Shouldn't divine love be beyond wrath? God is love, and God loves every person and every creature. That's exactly why God is wrathful against some of them. My last resistance to the idea of God's wrath was the casualty of the war in the former Yugoslavia, the region from which I come. According to some estimates, 200,000 people were killed, and over 3 million were displaced. My villages and cities were destroyed, my people shelled day in and day out, some of them brutalized beyond imagine. And I could not imagine God not being angry. Or think of Rwanda in the last decade of the past century, where 800,000 people were hacked to death in 100 days. How does God react to that carnage? By doting on the perpetrators in a grandfatherly fashion? By refusing to condemn the bloodbath, but instead affirming the perpetrator's basic goodness? Wasn't God fiercely angry with them? Though I used to complain about the indecency of the idea of God's wrath, I came to think that I would have to rebel against a God who wasn't wrathful at the sight of the world's evil. God isn't wrathful in spite of being love. God is wrathful because God is love. He's wrathful because God is love. God will surely judge. God will surely judge rightly. Thirdly, God will surely judge all people's rightly. This is the heartbreaking reality of the story that Rhett and Shannon shared with us that is true around the world, that God will surely judge all peoples rightly, not simply all peoples that sit in American churches, but all peoples that stand under the weight of sin, which is all peoples. The nations were aware of God. They had rebelled from the knowledge that they had, and thus God judged. I mean, this is the immediate question that you get, right? David Platt tells the story well. Like the, the question, um, what about the innocent man that lives in the bush? Never heard the gospel. Like, does he go to heaven when he die? Platt's answer, yes, of course he goes to heaven when he, die, when he dies. The problem is such a person doesn't exist, right? There is no innocent man that lives in the bush, Every person that has ever lived is rightfully under the weight of the condemnation of their sin. And we can rest assured, according to Romans 1, that the knowledge that they do have of God, they have rebelled from. Thus, all people, regardless of their level of knowledge, rebel from the knowledge that they do have and stand under the weight of the judgment of God. Around the world... The peoples of the world are at a severe disadvantage to you and I. I have people group data 
Give us a sense of this reality. And by people groups, we don't mean the modern notion of nation states. We mean, we mean cultural or linguistic groupings of people. The 2012 data around the world reveals this. I think we've got some maps. It'll be hard to see. I'll post them online uh, as we go through this week. But right now in the world, there are around 1,100, uh, I'm sorry, 11,341 people groups in the world. Of those 11,341 people groups around the world, approximately 6,000 of those are unreached, representing approximately 2 billion of the 7 billion people on the world are unreached with the gospel. If you look at this map, you'll see, um, and again, I'll post this online for you, to see and study uh, in your own time. But the red dots here reflect a reality around the world of places where there is no zero access to the gospel, no evangelical churches or Christians, or less than 2% evangelical. This number represents almost 6,000 people groups. The orange dots on this map represent places around the world that still have less than 2% evangelical Christians but they have some church planting work going on amongst their people. There's at least a believer embedded amongst these people. The total unreached peoples around the world, 6,369 people groups. There, in contrast, you see the light green and the dark green areas. The light green illustrating places where there's at least 5% evangelical presence. The dark green dots on the map illustrating places where there is 10% or greater evangelical presence. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out where we live, right? It doesn't take a genius to figure out that we have been entrusted with a stewardship for the sake of the nations. Hold on, you say there are unreached people here. I mean, I work with Lost Joe or Lost Susie. What we are talking about around the world are not simply people that are lost. We are talking about people that have no access to the gospel. People that will live and die without coming in contact with another Christian, a church. They have no Bible in their language. You might be able to see it more clearly if I, if I do this. This map illustrates the light around the world. The pockets of light are marked uh, clearly where you can see the pockets of darkness where there are zero or very little evangelical presence. David Platt writes about this reality of two billion people that live in darkness. That there are two billion people around the world whose knowledge of God is only sufficient to damn them to hell forever. Two billion people. Or perhaps some of you that like math a little bit more, this little clicker will help you. Again, I'll post this this week so you can see it. Might not be a bad thing to put on your screensaver or your desktop. A population clicker and calculator. It's estimating the growth of the world's population. And the spread of the gospel around the world. This should serve for us as a stark condemnation because we live in a day and age where it is easier to get the message of the gospel to the globe than at any other time. 
Globalization means that I can, in a moment's click, be in contact with people literally around the world. And in a day and age when it's easier for many of us to uproot and move our lives to eastern Turkey to work amongst a people that has seven Christians among it, 42% of us in America will require the duration of 2014 to pay off what we spend on our 2013 Christmas shopping. We are squandering the entrustment that is given to us for the sake of two billion people that have not heard But not only will God judge all peoples, these peoples, the faces that are represented in those little cliques, but God will also judge us. God will also judge you. Many of you who, much like the Israelites, have been entrusted with a great stewardship. You sit under the teaching of God's word week in and week out. You have easy access to biblical community in the small group. You have been exposed to the gospel by believing parents or family members. You have the great luxury of being able to sit in front of a Bible that you can read and understand. And many of you still reject that. We can rest assured that what is true of Ezekiel 5 and the nation of Israel in exile will be true for many in this room with ready access to repent and respond to the gospel message, and you will rebel from that. And as a result, you will stand under the fierce weight of the judgment of God. But, lastly, this is the beautiful truth with which we'll end, is this, God provides time to repent. God provides time to repent. The Old Testament prophets bear ample witness to God's patience with people in his repeated efforts to call them back to faithfulness. He gives mercy to the nations. We see people like Rahab, like Ruth, like Nineveh and Jonah's day who repent and are engrafted into the nation of Israel. See, even places like Jericho, where with every lap the Israelites make around the city, there is space and time for that city to repent. God doesn't act hastily and swiftly, but rather he gives us time. And he says, and very hopeful and prophetic words like Jeremiah 18, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do it. The longing sections of Hosea 11, like this from Hosea 11:8, God longs to gather his people. He longs to not give up on them. My compassion grows warm and tender. He longs to provide an opportunity and a space to repent. Those nations and those peoples that are alive right now on the eastern coast of the Black Sea, or on the eastern coast of Turkey along the Black Sea, God is providing space and time for the gospel to get there, and we have an opportunity to be a part of that. Secondarily, if you're here this morning, God has in his kindness, just by you sitting under the teaching of the word this morning, given you space and time to repent. You can turn from your sins and fling yourself upon the grace and mercy of God this very morning. That hope is provided for you simply because of this. 
that God has, in his kindness, poured out the judgment that is rightly due you on his son. That a suffering servant came, a seed from the line of Abram, who bore the wrath and provided a way for God to save you from his judgment. And because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus, all of us who are in Christ, in Jesus, the wrath has already been paid in full on his son. Tim Keller writes to this point and says that we should be, we should be jolted not by the fact that God would judge, but by the fact that God would forgive. He says, why aren't you more shocked and more horrified by the reality that God would forgive any one of us than you are by the fact that God would judge damnable sinners? That shouldn't catch you off guard at all. But the fact that he would forgive me should be shocking. God provides space and a way for us to be forgiven because the reality that we see this morning is judgment is coming and it's either going to be spent on Jesus or it's going to be spent on you. So this morning, much like Bunyan's Christian pleading with the townspeople to repent before the coming destruction, I plead with you to repent. To turn from your sins, to fling yourself upon the finished work of Christ, where in whom the judgment of God can be fully exhausted. Do not walk away this day with your back bowed to God, saying, Surely I will be the one who will escape his judgment. No, you will not. No, you will not. Would you repent this morning? Would you admit the fact that you don't have a leg to stand on because of your sin? It is rightfully deserving death. And would you place your faith and trust in the one who extinguished death on your behalf? You can do this uh, around TCC simply by placing your name, indicating that you want to trust in Christ on the contact card that we provide on your way in. Specifically there, we see in the scriptures that the mark for people to say, I've crossed from death to life. I don't want to stand under the judgment of God. I fling myself wildly upon the person and work of Christ is that they would publicly declare that through the act of baptism. That serves in the scriptures as the definitive break with your former life, with being in Adam to now declaring I am in Christ. December 8th, two weeks from now, we're going to baptize people here at TCC. And some of you, God is calling to repent, to turn from your sins, and to be baptized. I want to invite you to check that on that card to give us an opportunity in the next two weeks to come to spend time with you, to hear about what God is doing in your life, to talk to you about the gospel, to help you wrestle with questions of faith and conversion then we would love the opportunity to, for you to publicly declare your newfound faith in Christ on December 8th. We're going to baptize people. We're going to allow them to share their testimony of how God saved them. And we're going to celebrate together as a church those that God has brought from death to life. And I know many of our community, you are here and you don't know Jesus, but God is pursuing you. And he has been for some months. I beg you to not let this morning pass without 
prayerfully considering what it looks like to trust in the person and work of Christ. You can do that where you're seated as we pray in a moment, to simply admit your sin, trust in what Christ has done, repent and turn from that sin, claim his finished work on your behalf. There's not some mystical prayer that I pray that you quote after me and you become a Christian, but rather for some of you, God is awakening your heart to the gospel. And you own and you acknowledge that right where you are. And you indicate that by checking a card and the pastors follow up, and then we have an opportunity to baptize you. For many of the rest of you in the room, this morning stands as a weight of responsibility that there are around the world two billion people without access to the gospel, and some of you need to go. Told Rhett and Shannon's story this morning for a specific reason. I hope you can see you can do anything in your going. You don't have to be a professional pastor. You take whatever skills and whatever abilities, whatever God's placed in your heart, and you say, in a city like Greenville, I don't have to worry. There is access to the gospel here. This very morning, everybody in Greenville County could, within a five-minute drive, ten-minute drive, gather with a local church community where they would hear the gospel clearly proclaimed. That is true in our county. Now, not every church that people descend on will they hear the gospel clearly proclaimed, but a lot of them they will. There is access to the gospel here in Greenville. That is not true around the world, and some of you need to go to make a difference in that. Some of you need to go. You need to trust us with the work God's given us here, and you need to say, I'm going to go do some work there. So that as a community, we would steward the entrustment that God has given us for the sake of those that will stand under the rightful judgment of God. Behold the kindness and severity of God.